And I just lost control of this bike and, and I crashed. So yeah, a lot of front parts were just, just broken and uh, yeah, I hurt myself also a little bit. Uh, they thought that now I will cancel everything, I will not go. My name is Anna Grichishkina. I'm from, from Ukraine, from the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, and I'm doing the trip around the world on my motorcycle. Adventure Rider Radio is supported by, in part, Max BMW Motorcycles, who's been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your electrical system and will inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty, which is new. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. See it for yourself at www.cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, who offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Available at www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Moe. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheelworks. Bernard Smith. Gregory Frazee. Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannon. Nathan Millwall. Walter Colbert. Jura. Christelle Bayer-Vajou. Lawrence Harking. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Lois Fry. Robert Wicks. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, this is Mary McGee, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Anna Grzyszkina is from Kiev in the Ukraine. And back in July of 2013, she rode her motorcycle away from her home to follow her dreams of a motorcycle trip around the world. Now, having fallen in love with motorcycling back in 2005, she managed to get her license through this apparently arduous Ukrainian licensing system. And then she began taking short trips, which led to longer trips, and many people find lead to even longer trips. And then finally, to this big one, they would see her on the road by herself for perhaps a year or two. Now, when planning the trip, Anna was riding a street bike, but she thought through everything that she'd learned that she needed something more adventurous for an epic journey of this size. So she began to look around for an alternate bike. And through a lot of negotiating, which you're going to hear on this episode, she managed to get KTM to supply her with a motorcycle, except the motorcycle was completely different than what she had imagined. Now, Anna doesn't claim to be rich or, or a highly experienced rider. In fact, she says that when she left Ukraine, she only had about $1,000 in her pocket. 
Now, fast forward three years later, longer than the time she had planned, Anna sits in a tour tech shop in Brazil while she sorts out the mind-numbing details of shipping her motorcycle to Africa. Um, my name is Anna Grichishkina. I'm from, from Ukraine, from the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, and I'm doing the trip around the world on my motorcycle. Anna, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting. Where are you right now? Uh, right now, in uh, I am in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, in the Touratech shop. <laughs> in Brazil, in a Touratech shop. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> we'll get we'll get caught up in a minute. But I want to go right back to the start because you started riding in what two thousand five. Yes. So yes. what got you into riding in 2005? I mean, none of your family has ridden. Uh, from what I understand, no one's licensed in your family. Your friends don't ride. This is a thing where it sort of fell out of the sky on you. Yeah, exactly. I didn't have any friends, any boyfriend who would be motorcyclist. I, I, I was not riding even as a passenger, never before. So I, I didn't I didn't know how it feels like to be on the motorcycle. Just, yes, one day I woke up with that idea that it would be great to, to learn how to ride. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. So now I can see that sort of sign from above, from the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there has to be something. You had to walk by like a bus shelter or something or see a poster or or maybe, I don't know, 2005, maybe there's something you saw on television. There's got to be something that sort of made you think motorcycle. Yeah, probably, probably. I would really love to know what was that because I don't remember. I don't remember. (laughs) But there should have been something probably or some movie or poster like you mentioned or whatever, but... Well, I don't remember. It just, it came to me suddenly. <laughs> so what does your family say when you all of a sudden say, I'm, I'm going to go get my bike license? Um, well, actually at that time, um, I lived with my father only and he was the only person actually in my family who knew about that. And uh, he was very supportive, actually. He was a little bit scared about me, but he was really supportive. My aunts, my cousins didn't know about that maybe for two or three years. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, but it it, it was easy to hide because we live quite far away, even though in one city. So I just didn't tell them that. And that's it. (laughs) You started at a 125 Kawasaki and and then moved up. Was that bike stolen? Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could ride it only one year and then the next year it was stolen just uh, near to my house because I left it just parked outside on the street for for several nights in a row. So uh, it was quite logic. <laughs> and then you moved on to what? Uh, then I took the loan from the bank. I worked at that time and I bought Kawasaki Vulcan 900. So that, that is was a, quite a big yeah. step up from a 125. What did that feel like? Yeah, I just, when I saw that bike in, uh, you know, in the motorcycle shop in Kawasaki dealership, I just fell in love with that bike and um, I asked them for a test ride just, you know, around the block and they let me do that and I realized that, yeah, I can manage. <laughs> so that's how it happened. And what did you do with the bike after that? What got you into to motorcycle travel? Or, or I guess but first, before you answer that, have you been into travel before? Did you go backpacking and doing that sort of thing? No, not backpacking. Uh, we just traveled a little bit with my father when I was younger, but by train, by airplane, this kind of things. I mean, just normal, um, normal vacation model. <laughs> Nothing like that. Uh, I just, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't about, you know, arriving to destination, but just about the process of, um, of going by, by train or by, by bus or by any kind of vehicles. So I think that, that that's why it started, my, my passion about traveling and visiting places. 
And what got you into motorcycle travel? I mean, that's a sort of a big step for somebody who doesn't have, you know, friends around. Or maybe by that point you did have friends around you that were riding bikes. But what gave you the, the thought about traveling with your bike? Um, well, when I got my first motorcycle, that small uh, 125cc Kawasaki, I started to, to ride around Ukraine first, of course, for, to, to shorter distances. And um, I realized that I really enjoy it. And like the next time um, I was riding like for, for longer distance and a little bit longer and longer. And uh, I just realized that that's what I want to do. <laughs> and like one day or two days were not enough. Then I was traveling for one week or two weeks. And so it kept increasing, you know, in numbers. <laughs> so that's how I came to, to the trip around the world, I think. I think sometimes when I ask the, that sort of question, I, I sort of think to myself, I wonder if that's sort of an obvious thing, you know, because there's something about the motorcycle. If you ride it enough, you do just want to get on it and go further. You do decide, oh, yeah. well, I'll put a pack on and I'll go a little bit further. Yeah, it's like addiction that you you just can't stop. You you, you need to move further. <laughs> so that, that's quite a logic thing. I agree. Which you didn't stop, though, because you went toward Europe and Asia and Syria and, and you sort of went on yeah. from there. Yeah, yeah. I went to the Middle East, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and um, like in post-Soviet countries and uh, Eastern Europe, India. So that, that's, I traveled for, for a while <laughs> before this trip. When you started traveling, that, that for those first places you went to, did you go by yourself? Um, like... A few times I traveled in a group of people with two or three, three friends, and then uh, I tried alone. And um, I realized that I prefer to go alone because I don't have to compromise. I don't have to discuss anything to negotiate. I just do whatever I want. So, um, yeah, I continued to travel more alone than in a group. So when I was thinking about this trip around the world, I realized that I don't want any company. That's interesting because obviously most people think of doing something with someone else would be just more comforting, especially when you get into travel. When you get into world travel, you're going into these places, um, I mean, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, places that you would think you'd feel better if you had somebody with you. It's so foreign for you. Well, actually, at that travel, when I've been to Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon, uh, I was with uh, two of my friends. But what happened that uh, our last country is supposed to be Turkey, like eastern of Turkey, but uh, three of my friends, all of them were guys, uh, they realized that they miss their homes and families so much, so they want just to skip Turkey and go back to Ukraine immediately. <laughs> but for me, at that point, Turkey was the most important part of that travel. So by no means, I would skip Turkey. So I told them, okay if you want to go you can go but i will continue to turkey alone <laughs> they didn't expect that until the very last day they tried to convince me to join them back home but um i was very stubborn and firm in my decision so i went to turkey alone yeah and i traveled like for, for two weeks alone and that's actually where and when i realized that i can do it alone even for such big distances how long did it take you to figure out? I mean, because I mean, there's, that, there's that curve, isn't there? When you go out and you do something like that, like first you think, oh, oh I might have made a mistake here. What am I doing? <laughs> and then you get a little bit more comfortable. And then you've got to go over that hump where all of a sudden you say, wow, this feels neat. How long did that take? Um, well, I think actually that that part of the travel when, uh, when I went to Turkey alone, that was like the turning point. I realized that I can do it and actually I like it and I don't need anybody around me. And actually, I started to meet more people uh, when I was alone, because when you're alone, you just attract people and strangers who want to talk to you. <laughs> so that's how I realized that that's the way of travel that uh, I really prefer and I enjoy. 
So after that travel, I started actually to travel more alone. What is it about you or the method that you're using that makes travel alone comfortable? Or is there anything? Um, <laughs> like, I mean, you mentioned stubborn. You said, you know, you were so stubborn. Have you always been a stubborn person? Are you that type of person that, that goes out and, you know, you're that one woman will stand alone and chase down what you want? Have you always been like that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I remember that I, I, I've always been like this. If I want something... If I want to do something, then uh, I will do my best to make it happen. So just breaking the walls, you know, opening the doors with <laughs> with kids. So, um, yeah, so I think that that's something about me, about my personality that, that makes it happen. So let me just dig a little deeper here, if you don't mind. It's yeah. So with that type of personality, it's not so much that you're super comfortable at everything. It's just that you will push yourself beyond feeling uncomfortable to achieve your goal. Is that sort of it? Mm, yeah, probably. But actually in that kind of situation, I feel really comfortable. You know, it feels really comfortable when you go out of your comfort zone, right? And just uh, try to make things happen. So probably that is the, the situation and environment where I feel the most comfortable. <laughs> what was life like for you back in Ukraine growing up? Um, well, I... Just I grew up in, in in a very normal family. We were not rich. We, we never had a car actually, so that's why we traveled with my father by train or by bus. So uh, um, I just I couldn't afford a lot of things, you know, that I would want to have. <laughs> and um, actually, the family life of my parents was not really really good one. <laughs> so um, I always dreamed about the life without any you know any fights, any quarrels between parents, something like that. So I was always looking forward to, you know, to something better. And I was thinking what I can do to make it happen, to, to make my life better. And actually, I think that this kind of life that I have now, that, that's what I was actually looking forward to. But at that time, I didn't know what would it be like. <laughs> but everything happens for a reason. And um, I think, yeah, that, that's what happened in my life. You ended up riding, you ended up renting a bike and riding in India. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, I've been there twice. Like the first time I traveled only for um, three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. And uh, I was riding Royal Enfield 500, the rented bike. And the second time I came back off, actually the next year after my first trip. And I've been there for four months already. And at that time I was riding a Pulsar uh, 250cc. What did you think of the Royal Enfield? Uh, it was a great bike, but uh, I wish I uh, I could afford to buy the new one <laughs> because that rented bike was really well, <laughs> not the best one. And almost every day we had to fix it. At that time, I was riding with, uh, with a group of people. Uh, there were five of us. So every day we had to struggle with one of our bikes. <laughs> but still, it was a great experience looking for mechanics or trying to figure out how to fix the bike ourselves so that was some kind of fun is that just because it's a rental bike and it's really you know not in good shape or was it because it's a royal enfield and it's not that reliable um well i think that royal enfield is quite reliable according to the feedback of other people who traveled on the same bike but on the new one so i think it's just about the, the bike which wasn't tuned and it's about the companies who were not maybe very honest with us when mm. they were giving us these bikes I was just wondering the difference between riding your Vulcan to going and riding on a Royal Enfield. I thought you might say, oh, uh, no, it was. 
No, I really enjoyed Royal Enfield, especially its sound, you know. Uh, but of course, I prefer my Kawasaki Vulcan, but it would be difficult to bring it to India at that time. So. <laughs> this trip that you're doing now is called I Have a Dream. That's what you've named it. That's what's on your bike, along with your name and some stickers of some sponsors that you have. Yes. How did you come up with this trip? Like, I get that you've done these other trips with other people. You mentioned, you know, riding in Turkey by yourself. What goes off? Uh, maybe it just fell out of the sky again. But what, what sets <laughs> off you to think I'm going to do a world tour? Um, well, actually, after one, uh, one of my trips, um, I started to think which country to go next. Uh, of course, there are plenty of countries that I didn't visit before. <laughs> uh, but again, I uh, just suddenly this idea about going around the world came into my mind. And, uh, well, I realized that it's, it's a stupid thing. I cannot do it. It's, um, it's difficult. It's expensive. And for a woman alone, it's impossible. So I just tried to push away this idea, but it started to come back to me again and again. So um, one rainy day, I decided to share it with one, one of my friends. Uh, motorcyclist and uh, I thought that he would try to talk me out <laughs> but surprisingly he didn't and he said that actually it would be a logic step in my sort of motorcycle career <laughs> and I started to think about it more seriously and actually that second time when I went to India for four months uh, during all these four months I was thinking about this this crazy idea and um, in this trip in India I realized that uh, Actually, I can do it. I can I can be far away from home for a long time because uh, that Indian trip was was the longest by the time. And when I came back to Ukraine, I decided that now it's not just a dream anymore. Uh, that's a plan, and uh, I'm going to to try at least to, to make it happen. When you were in India for those four months, were you riding alone or were you with others? Um, at that time I was riding with a friend of mine for three months, and then we separated. And the last months I was traveling alone. So you got a, a good idea of what it was like to travel on your own before you headed off yeah. on this trip. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you came up with the idea, but there's so many hurdles. I mean, I can't imagine how many hurdles you had to go through. One was getting a bike. Yes. <laughs> yes, because, um, well, I realized that, well, I really loved and still love my Kawasaki Vulcan, but I saw that probably that's not the, the, the best bike for the trip around the world. Uh, even though now I don't think so. <laughs> but at that time, mean, I right now you think that the Vulcan may have worked just fine, which I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, now I think that any kind of bike that you feel comfortable with is fine, even for the trip around the world, even if it's Kawasaki 125cc that yeah, I had exactly. before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, that's so, what I was thinking. I was thinking that Vulcan would have been just great, probably been an amazing yeah. bike to ride. Yeah, exactly. But at that time, when I was thinking about this idea, I thought that the best bike is like the big adventure bike, you know, like BMW or KTM. Well, I didn't, I didn't think about KTM at the time because I didn't know anything about those bikes. But uh, yeah, I was trying to to get some sponsorship from um, from any of the of the brands. I mean, dealerships in Ukraine and BMW and Suzuki, Kawasaki, all, all of them, and. Um, yeah, all of them seem to be very interested, but nobody wanted to to help somehow. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the way that I expected. And just, again, suddenly the, the KTM, I mean, the Ukrainian dealership, they uh, offered me to get in touch with Austrian headquarters and try to, to convince them to give me the bike. So, well, it took us around five or six months to convince them, but finally we, we succeeded. So that was like the the first and the, the biggest victory in preparation for this trip. <laughs> what year? That was in 2012 or 13 or something? 
um, in 2012. So that's amazing, though, to think that KTM would actually supply you a bike. What was it about your story that you were trying? I mean, obviously, there's a thing with women riders that is very attractive to people nowadays because there's not a lot of women riders out there, of course, getting more and more all the time that are traveling around the world. So that's of interest to a company because let's face it, companies mm-hmm. aren't going to give somebody a bike just because you want to go ride around the world. Who cares? What, yes. what they want is yes. exposure. They want bang for their buck. And, and even us talking about KTM right now is giving them a, a little bit more exposure for their money. But they have to be convinced that, that there's something there, something solid. What was it about your story that you think was about your story that made them say, yeah? Um, well, I, I didn't talk to them directly. So the communication was through Ukrainian office. And um, I got a lot of support from, from Ukrainian dealership. And uh, they knew about my travels before. And they knew that how serious I am and how stubborn I am. <laughs> so maybe, um, yeah, that was something that uh, that helped them to convince Austrian people. Yeah, and they presented my like my, my project that, uh, yes, my plans, uh, how many countries I'm going to cover, how many continents, what I'm going to do, including the social part of, of my trip. So probably that thing. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe just it was the matter of luck as well. The what? The matter of luck. <laughs> oh, matter of luck. I see. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people don't give that much weight and it probably should get a lot more weight than other things, even if it's uh, it's just being in the right place at the right time if you don't believe in luck. Yeah, uh, I do believe in that, actually. <laughs> so where did you go? You, you got your bike. You got some finances together. What was the first thing you did? Um, well, the first thing, uh, I went to Russia for test ride because uh, when I got this bike, I was I was very scared because it was so big and so heavy and actually my first bike of this type. Completely so, different than your Vulcan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was even so scared that I wanted, you know, to, to give up and to tell them that, you know what, <laughs> I cannot handle this bike. But, well, then I realized that I cannot do that. Everything is already, you know, settled. So I took my bike and I went to Russia and everything was fine. But on the way back, I, um, I took different roads, which was a more difficult road <laughs> with gravel and sand and everything. And I just lost control of this bike and, and I crashed. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, a lot of front parts were just, just broken. And, uh, yeah, I hurt myself also a little bit. Uh, but but I managed to, to get back to Ukraine with very low speed, you know, and very scared. But um, and actually, Ukrainian office was also very concerned. Uh, they thought that now I will cancel everything. I will not go anywhere. <laughs> but um, at that point, uh, I told to myself that now I'm even more confident that I want to do this. So that's kind of stubbornness again. <laughs> When you crash and you're sort of laying there or, or sitting beside the bike and go back to that time, what was your feelings then? Um, I was in a complete shock, you know. I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine that that would happen to me because that was actually my first crash in, uh, in all those years before. So probably, actually one of my friends told me recently that I'm very spoiled with my luck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so probably at that time uh, I was shocked because of that. Because everything went, went very smooth before that, and now and now I'm crashed. How could that happen? So th- th- I felt something like that. I didn't think, you know, about the trip around the world, about my future plans, nothing. I was just, I was just very surprised that it happened to me with the girl with so much luck, you know. <laughs> so what? Frustration at that point? Where you you think, you know, this is garbage. This is going to work. Was that it? That sort of pushed you to get up and get back on? Uh 
Yeah, actually, well, I had to, you know, anyway, I had to get back to Ukraine on the same bike. So it took me a few days and I was thinking a lot. Um, but um, then I told to myself that probably um, I lacked skills of riding this bike and uh, off-road skills as well. So I decided that I just need to um, to prepare better for this trip. And it's not just the matter of luck. I, I had to, you know, to, to be more responsible. And I think that that helped me in this trip a lot because I realized that, yeah, I have to work harder to, to succeed in this trip, not just to get the bike and go. I need to do a lot of things before. So actually now uh, I understand that it was it was a good thing that I crashed because the crash, well, it was quite, you know, quite big, but <laughs> nothing too serious. I could get up and still ride the same day. So actually I'm happy that it happened that way. It, it, it taught me a lot of things and um, yeah, I think that now I am where I am also partially due to that experience. Now, so far we've just mentioned KTM. What KTM bike is this? Uh, this is KTM Adventure 1190 of 2016. An Adventure 1190 is huge. What are you doing with a bike that big? I thought you would have been on some tiny little bike. I mean, to be honest, I, I knew, but I mean, it, it's just, it, you would automatically assume that, you know, I mean, how tall are you? Um, I am 175 centimeters. So 5.7 feet. Yeah. So can you imagine that when I saw that bike the first time, I was terrified. I couldn't imagine that it would be so big because before, like before we made the deal, I could see this bike only on the picture, you know, uh, oh, Ukrainian. Right. Yeah. So, so you yeah, get to the Ukraine. dealership. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say when you walk in and you see this bike? Was it, was, did you point out that, you, that it's much bigger than you imagined? Well, I couldn't tell them that, you know, I'm very scared of this bike because <laughs> I love <laughs> I had, it. Just play it cool. <laughs> yeah, I had to convince them that I could do it, you know. So I was just silent for a few minutes, you know, and I got on the bike just, you know, to, uh, I touched it, you know, from different sides. <laughs> but of course, they noticed that I didn't feel comfortable with that, <laughs> too much comfortable. So, yeah, for some time, I just had to play the role, you know, that oh, I'm fine. I can I can manage. I can handle. <laughs> just, just my close friends knew that I'm just in the, in the state of shock, and I don't know what to do with this bike now. <laughs> and actually, I felt a little bit ashamed because you know I could imagine that uh, the first time that I turn on this bike, you know, and go for a ride around at the shop or whatever, and people see that I'm so awkward and I even don't know how to, you know, how to ride this kind of bike. So that made me also very concerned. <laughs> So after you crashed, you said you wanted to m make sure that you're better prepared. Did you did you take off-road riding lessons or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, actually, I took classes uh, on-road and off-road and uh, like motorcycle riding school in Kiev. Smart. So they, yeah, so they told me up till the till the day I, I started off for my trip. So that, that helped me. And also during my trip, I also had a few classes in Singapore and in the United States just, you know, to, to keep improving my skills. Yeah, that, that's a smart thing to do. We've talked about that a lot on this show about whether you should do that sort of thing before you head off on an adventure. And, and it clearly, I mean, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, you, you have to do that, definitely. <laughs> and yeah, I agree. So you um, got your brand new KTM bike and everything. You say you, you headed to Russia first and then yeah. you ended up uh, going where? Uh, 
Well, I went to Russia for the test ride, right? So I came back to Ukraine after a week. And so I kept preparing for start of the trip. And I started on July 27. And I went to Russia again, but already as a part of the trip around the world. And it took me three months to, to get to Vladivostok. So I crossed, crossed all Russia from Moscow to Vladivostok. And then to Southeast Asia was my next step. And at what point did you find that you're, you've sort of forgotten about the bike, where the bike just becomes a, a you know, part of you? And, you know, at, at, at what point were you really comfortable on it? Um, well, I might say a strange thing, <laughs> but I think that up till now, I've, I, I cannot say that I don't feel comfortable with the bike. Now I feel much, much more comfortable than, than before. But I cannot say that I'm completely and 100% comfortable. I always, you know, um, I'm always careful. I always try to, you know, ride carefully to, to be careful with the bike, with the road, with, with everything. So, yeah. How did you end up in South America? Um, so from Southeast Asia, I went to Australia, from Australia to the United States, and then uh, going down Mexico, Central America, and South America, from Colombia by um, Western Coast, Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, to Ushuaia, uh, then up to Buenos Aires, Uruguay, Paraguay, and now Brazil. So from here, I go to Africa, Europe, and then probably home. <laughs> So is it over at that point when you go home? No, no, I don't think so. Maybe that's just the, the beginning of something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really neat. The, the countries that you went through until now, I mean, you've been through a lot of countries. What sort of things have you learned going through these countries? Uh, actually, I learned a lot of things uh, about the countries, about people, about myself. But, well, the first thing that I learned is that everything is possible because... Well, uh, honestly, when I started my trip, I had $1,000 in my pocket. And, uh, well, at least almost nobody knew about that. And deep to the inside of me, I thought that maybe after two or three months, I will have to come back home with, you know, with the feeling of failure. <laughs> but, uh, well, so far, so good. Three years, I'm still on the road. So, yeah, this is the most important thing that I learned. That, you know what, if you have a dream, if you want to do something, you can do it no matter what. <laughs> I really love these kind of stories because it does show that, doesn't it? It shows that um, it's sort of like a leap of faith, isn't it? I've heard it described as that, where you, you're sort of stepping off into the abyss, but fully expecting to make it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because $1,000, people... like that's that's nothing. Yeah, that's why, you know, when people tell me, oh, of course, if I had a million of dollars, I would go around the world as well, like you. <laughs> they would say, you know what, I didn't have $1 million, I had $1,000, how about that? <laughs> So, well, now I realize that probably that was a crazy thing. And I'm not sure that I would repeat it again you know, in my life. Um, but, well, I just did it. And probably it was meant to be. And, yeah, I, I'm still on the road. And uh, there is a chance that I'll be on the road for, for some time more. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, because I mean, now, especially in hindsight, when you learn something and you look back and you think, wow, I can't believe I actually did that when I started. Yeah. And I, I know I've had a few of those in my life where I look back and I think if I knew then what I know now, there's no way I would have done it. And I would have missed out because of it, you know, like same as you yeah. had you had this this knowledge that you have now and this this, uh, mm -hmm. I, I guess, experience, then you would have just canceled it at that point and said, well, no, it's obvious. It's logical. It's not going mm -hmm. to work. Yet it works. 
Yeah, exactly. And actually, I'm, now I'm quite in a similar situation. I go to Africa with, with uh, well, after I ship my bike, I will have not even $1,000. I will have much less. <laughs> and I understand that, that at this point, I have to, you know, to stop and to wait for better days. But I remember that experience of three years ago. <laughs> and I tell to myself that, uh, wait, don't cancel it right now. Maybe something will happen to, you know, to, to fix the situation. So let's see. I don't know, but still there is a chance. <laughs> what do you do at this point? Like, do you take on new sponsors as you go? Well, at the moment, I'm, um, I really work hard to, to look for sponsorship for maybe for some companies in the motorcycle industry or outside of the motorcycle industry who would be interested to sponsor this trip in return of some exposure and promotion, stickers on my bike, you know, like logos on my website, etc. So um, I really hope that uh, some of the companies would be interested to support me. I'm so glad you just said that because, you know, many times people talk about getting sponsored for a trip. Other people will say, well, that's basically you're just asking for someone to pay for your, your vacation. But immediately you identified right away there that there's an exchange there. Because like I said before, is companies don't want to give you something just to say, oh, you seem like a nice person. Yeah, take my product for free and, and go off. I mean, let's face it, we have to make money, you know, and companies have yeah. to make money. So they want to give you something that you're going to get something out of, but then they're also going to get something out of. And like you said right there, it's, it's the exposure on your website, etc. I mean, obviously you have a, a big social media presence, which does a lot for you as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like uh, one of the person that I met yesterday told me that um, don't be afraid to ask because what you are doing now, it's not vacation. This is your work. <laughs> and you have, yeah, and you have to be paid for this work. So, yeah. When it changes to work, though, has it changed the, the sort of the nature or the feeling of the trip for you or does it just make it more exciting? Um, well, that's a difficult question. Actually, uh, over the time, yeah, my feelings about this trip changed a little bit. I do consider it sometimes as a work, a work that I really enjoy and um, I like to do, but still it's work. And sometimes um, I feel really tired because this is work without vacation, without weekends, without nothing. And sometimes I just want to get lost, you know, without any exposure, without any people around, without anybody asking me questions, you know, the same questions million of times. <laughs> You know, and um, yeah, sometimes I just want to, you know, to, to stay on the beach for, for, for a week or for a month and just to, to forget about everything. And uh, I know that it will not happen sometime soon. <laughs> so uh, it is a hard work, actually. Still, you enjoy it. Still, uh, it's a great work, but uh, it is difficult. It's not a never ending vacation that you just enjoy and have fun. It is not. What is it about it that's work? Is it, is it that you're riding around on a bike with logos on it and things that draw people in and they're, they're sort of, you know, demanding, uh, not demanding, but, but asking for your story, etc.? Or, or is it the social media aspect or maybe a combination? Uh, it's just combination of everything. I mean, in my situation, I always need to, to look for, for the funds to continue my trip, right? Overcoming all the obstacles, like crossing the borders. Now, uh, I have a lot of problems with the shipment of my bike from Brazil to Africa. And yeah, and exposure because all the people want to, want to talk to you, want your attention. And sometimes you just cannot have time for yourself. I mean, the combination of these things, things. And almost every day I have to post photos on Facebook, social media, etc., etc. If I I don't do it for a while i'm well i'm losing my followers my audience right and um yeah that that's uh, that works against me so yeah combination of things 
yeah, and you just have to to be alert from morning till night. <laughs> so it's about writing, it's about taking photos, it's, it's about processing of all the information that you get uh, about exposure, about everything. The other thing is you're doing this alone. I mean, it's not like you have a crew behind you, or, or do you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what I forgot to mention. Uh, because if, if you're in the group, you can distribute like responsibilities, right? I have to do everything alone. I have to look for accommodation because uh, of my low budget. I always have to, to look for hosts for people who would who would agree to host me at their homes, right? I have to look for, for sponsorship. I have to ride. Right? <laughs> I have to organize shipments of the bike, maintenance of the bike. Um, yeah, everything, everything. That's that's only my responsibility. Of course, I have a few friends who may help with, you know, a research of information or maybe sending messages on my behalf to, to some people. But, um, well, that's, that's a lot of help still, but that, that's, not, that's not enough. It's not everything. <laughs> Most of the work is done by myself. What's a, a real low point for your trip? Um, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, was there a point in the trip where you just found it just grinding on you? Um, you know, I remember that at one point, like, I think it happened uh, a little bit after one, um, after I've been on the road for one year, I, I felt sort of depressed, you know, I was tired of everything. I didn't want to, to take photos, to take videos. I didn't want to talk to people, you know. I just wanted to, to, to stay alone. Uh, and uh, I, I hated my bike, you know. I, I was thinking about going back home because I was just, that, that was enough. Um, but, well, then I thought twice <laughs> and I realized that if I go back, I, I will regret it till the end of my life. So I just have to push harder. I have to, you know, to step over that point and maybe a little bit later it would get better. And it did. It got better. And now um, I again enjoy my trip even more than before. Um, but now I try to stop once in a while, you know, at one place and just to, to relax and uh, to do nothing, even though it doesn't happen too often. <laughs> but still, sometimes I try to do that. Well, you're clearly yeah. stopped and maybe relaxing a little bit anyway, because we can hear the noises of the tour tech shop people, uh, I guess, working on motorcycles there. But yeah. the question I had was, it sort of goes along with what we've been talking about, is do you ever get lonely on the road? Because you are traveling by yourself. And I think for those of us who haven't done a, a huge trip like this, it sort of runs through your head. Wouldn't you find times where you just get lonely? Yes, yes. And um, it happens now more and more often. <laughs> because, you know... Um, well, I meet a lot of people, you know, and sometimes um, I just have too many people around me. But I think that sometimes that's the point when when and where you feel that the most lonely, the loneliest. <laughs> because, yes, I meet a lot of people, but uh, the people always change. I never have time to, to make um, like a really big bond and close bond with them. And all of my like best friends there in Ukraine and, uh, well, haven't seen them for three years. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I really feel lonely a lot of times. How do you deal with it? Uh, sometimes I just cry, you know. <laughs> sometimes I let myself to be depressed a little bit. Um, but then I just, then I get up and keep going. Because again, as I said, if I fail, if I, I don't know, if I give up, it, it, it will not it will not get better I will just regret all my life that you know I didn't finish what I started so these kind of thoughts uh, they help me and also um, well I mentioned a little bit about my social like component of this trip meeting uh, children and at schools at orphanages and just meeting people and encouraging them to follow their dreams 
And I always think about these people whom I encourage, you know, to follow their dreams. And I always think if I fail and they know about this and they will definitely know about this, what kind of example it would be for them? So it means that their dreams cannot come true as well. <laughs> so um, this kind of thoughts, they stop me from, uh, from giving up, actually. What have you learned about riding a motorcycle? Because now you've been riding for a long time through many different terrains and countries, etc. What have you learned about the bike itself? And I don't mean your bike in specific. I mean, just motorcycles in general. Um, well, first of all, I learned that you can travel any kind of bike <laughs> anywhere around the world in any country. It just it depends on you and how cautious you are, how careful you are and how responsible you are towards yourself and towards the bike, towards, uh, I don't know, people around you. So uh, since I started my trip, I didn't have any crashes like I had in, in Russia as a test ride, uh, at, at my test ride. And uh, yeah, I learned that I just have to be responsible for, for my riding. And um, as I mentioned, I, I don't mean to, to set up any records. I don't want to, to prove to anybody that I'm the best or I'm the fastest or the strongest. I just, um, I just do my thing. I just do my travel and um, I do it the way I want to do it. <laughs> to hear that every day isn't a day filled with roses and, and grand things happening is interesting. And you're not doing it to get rich because, as you said, you're almost out of money here as you're heading to Africa. But you're yeah. doing it for another reason. Like I guess the you're you're getting more out of the overall trip than those small parts that are difficult. Then am I adding it up correctly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, I feel um, like I'm the happiest person, even with all these troubles and with the feelings of loneliness, with sometimes some periods of of depression as well. But um, you know, they, they're just emotions that they will come and go. But this feeling, you know, this stable feeling of happiness, it, it's always with me. I learned a lot of things. I made a lot of great friends. I met a lot of amazing people in my trip. And I visited amazing places. And uh, I realized that probably that's that's something that many, many people around me want to do that, but probably they, they will not do it for for some reasons. And I'm doing this. So I just have to be grateful for that. And, and I am. And the fact of the matter is too, even if you're at home, we still have things to deal with at home. Life is not perfect at home either. So you could be at home and have to deal with a lot of the same issues, maybe, maybe different issues, but in the same sort of degree of, of discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So I just prefer to, to deal with the problems and hardships in my trip around the world and just being at home and looking through my window on the same street. And what do you have for top tips for someone else who's considering doing something like this? Um, just do it. Just don't think too much, probably. I think that uh, if we are thinking too much about the problems, about the difficulties of this trip, we will, we will get enough of the problems to, to stop us from doing this. Yeah, you just yeah you have to be responsible and you have to plan well in advance and you have to consider all the hardships. But just don't think too much and don't plan too much. If you if you feel that that's really something you want to do, you just make the first step because this step is the, the most difficult one. Um, the second step and the third step and further steps are much easier to do. Just it's not necessary to to know everything that will happen because you will you will never know this. But um, just step out of your comfort zone and then you will see that the miracle will happen. You've said a couple of times now, be responsible. What does that mean? 
Um, well, I realized that a, lo a lot of things, actually, majority of things depend on me. For example, like people say that, oh, like in some countries, the traffic is crazy. You just uh, crazy drivers and you can get into accidents easily. Well, so far, yeah, I've been to too many countries like that. India and Peru, I think they, they were just worse. Brazil as well. But your safety and your life and your health, it depends completely on you. Yeah, some people can be crazy and they don't follow the rules, like traffic rules, etc. But it's your responsibility to take that into account and to act correspondingly. Uh, so it's it just the, the example of being responsible. And just take your just take your life and everything that's happening in your life is your responsibility, not somebody else. Don't blame anybody or anything that that's their fault or that's the situation's fault. Uh, that that that's your fault or, or your responsibility. So. What other top tips? Um, for preparation or? <laughs> I just think for it overall. I mean, it's interesting you say just do it because everybody says that, you know, who goes out on a trip. It's like everyone else is sitting the sidelines who's, just, who's thinking of doing this or any sort of trip, you know, that might be a stretch for them. And like you said, it's stepping out of your comfort zone. And they're sort of waiting for that definitive, you know, thing to come their way that's going to tell them to go. And yet people like yourself say that's the number one thing. Just do it. Yeah, it's as simple as that. You know, if people think that you will give them some kind of secret thing that they haven't known before, it will not happen because there is no secret. You know, um, there is nothing about it. You just uh, you just have to realize if this is really something that you want to do, if you want to do, just do it. If you don't want to do, you just can look for all kinds of uh, reasons not to do that. But uh these reasons are not the real, you know, the real obstacles on the way to your dream. The real obstacle is you and just uh, your unwillingness to do that. So you just uh, have to be honest to yourself and just tell to yourself, I just don't want to do that. My priority is different one. I don't want to go around the world. I want to, to build a career. And that is perfectly fine. That also can be a dream that many people have. There's nothing wrong about this. Just be honest to yourself. I want to do this thing, not another thing. <laughs> If you were to reach in your panniers with, of your bike there and take out the top things that you consider to be things that you can't do without on your trip, what would they be? Um, well, I cannot live without my photo camera, <laughs> without my laptop. I mean, all these electronic devices. Um, I have also my tent. I always have it with me. Um, well, what else? Uh, a few tools for my bike. Uh, I I don't have too many of them, but still. Um, and some of personal clothes, that, that's that's it. I, I have as minimum clothes as possible and as minimum stuff as possible. I try to, to make my bike very light, but still it's not. <laughs> and everything in your panniers, it's all stuff that you use on a regular basis. There's nothing sitting in there that you don't use at all and it just sort of sits there? Oh, well, sometimes if um, if I see that I don't use it, then I send it back home. But, but normally... Um, no, I just I use everything that I have. As I said, I have just the minimum. Now, I realized that uh, once you start riding and traveling like, like this for a long time, you, you realize how few things you need, actually. <laughs> um, I just have two, two pairs of jeans, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, a few T-shirts, um, like two pairs of shoes, and, and that's enough. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm constantly amazed at how little you can get by with. And you yeah. get used to it. You don't even notice it. It's not like yeah, you're yeah. not like you're suffering. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't suffer at all. I'm 
I'm happy with what I have and I don't need much. <laughs> well, if I need something, uh, I buy it. That's it. But normally it doesn't happen. You're traveling on the on the cheap. You mentioned that you've you've got your your tent there, or, or should I say I shouldn't say cheap. I should say low budget. Uh, you've got your tent there, and, and I know you've been camping. And I guess you're staying in in the cheapest uh, hotels or accommodations you can find, or like you said, maybe staying with someone for free. Yeah, I prefer to stay actually with local people. So I would say that probably ninety percent of the time um, I'm hosted by by the people by oh. the local people. Nice. So yeah. now, why do you choose that? Well, first of all, because it helps me to, to save a lot of money, right? And uh, that's how I make a lot of friends. And um, and I, I get this feeling um, of the culture, of the local culture. I can see how people live, actually. Uh, because when you stay at the hotel or when you're camping, you, you don't have this feeling. Um, but actually, when you stay inside and when you get sort of part of the family for a while, that, that's a very different thing. And I enjoy it. For me, that's sort of cultural uh, cultural thing, mostly. I also noticed that you have a, uh, a spot on your website where people can donate. When they donate, what do they get out of that? Well, actually, now I'm, um, I'm working on my first book. Uh, it would be a photography book. And um, all the people who donated me like recently and during all this time, because I have all the records and all the information, they will get uh, like my book with uh, science copy, uh, free shipment, etc. Um, well, so something like this, uh, sometimes I send my stickers, you know, small postcards and uh, keeping in touch with these people. Uh, but, you know, most, most of them, uh, well, they, they send me also like messages and they, they say that, uh, you know, you're living uh, my or our dream. So I just, uh, in this way, I just want to be part of your travel and, uh, yeah, it's part of my dream. So I think that when they do this, it's, it's not because they they expect something in return, you know, a sticker or a book or whatever. They just feel like doing this because I don't ask anybody personally, you know, to help. So when I, for example, post update on my fundraising page or anywhere, it just, uh, it's not, it's not personal. I, I mean, uh, anybody who can see it and who feels like this, they can donate, but nobody is, uh, is forced or convinced to do that. And it's a neat thing, like you say, to be a part of it. So, you know, they, mm. they started giving you hoping that you're going to keep going and keep bringing them the, the stories and postings that they've seen. That's, um, well, yeah. it's inspirational. It, it is as neat because not only, I mean, I know we've said everybody could do it, but everybody doesn't necessarily really want to do it, but it, it's yeah. really neat to watch someone else do it and learn through what you learn. So I guess that's what they're getting out of it. Yeah. And, um, I have many people who've been following me since the very beginning, you know, of my trip. So it's for more than three years. So even since uh, I was preparing for this trip and I feel really honored and privileged to have this kind of people in my life, you know, and yeah, and they're really interested and curious about all my updates on Facebook and web- on website. I really appreciate all this. So for me, this kind of people is, is my inspiration and my trip. Well, Anna, it was great to meet you and speak with you. And I, I wish you the, the best of luck in, uh, in your adventure in Africa. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you too. <laughs> I've been speaking with Anna Grashishkina, and you can find out more about Anna and the trip she's doing by visiting her website at www.ihaveadreamrtw.com. Of course, that link will be in our show notes. Stay with us. Coming up in just a minute, rider skills segment when the going gets stuck.
Adventure Rider Radio is also supported by Aerostitch. For 33 years, Aerostitch has been designing, making, and selling equipment that makes riding anywhere in all weather easier, safer, and more comfortable and more fun. No other rider's gear offers a proven protection, precision fit, and lifelong value of an Aerostitch. And, you know, I was looking on the Aerostitch website, and I spotted uh, their blog I, for this weather, because we're experiencing extreme heat right now, at least in Western Canada. And what do they have at the top of their blog? Eight tips for beating the heat. So if you drop by their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR, you can click on the, the link up in the upper right-hand side that says uh, open the zero below zero blog. And in there it has the eight tips for beating the heat with some good tips, um, some stuff from Andy Goldfine. Remember that when you're dealing with Aerostitch, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And I tell you what, the reason I'm telling you to go to aerostitch.com forward slash ARR, two reasons. One, it lets them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio. Two, it's going to get you 10% off your first order. Or if you're a repeat customer, it's going to get you free shipping on your next order. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And now for our rider skills segment, when the going gets stuck, we're going to zip on down to Washington State to PSSOR's Brett Tax. Brett, welcome back. Glad to be here. We got an email just before we came on here to start to record. It's from a fellow named John. He says, firstly, he loves the podcast. I've been listening to it for quite a while now. He really likes the new raw version as well. And um, he looks at his trips differently now. He says, he goes on to say that um, the scenic route has always been great for him, but he now he, he tends to stop longer. He tends to enjoy the environment longer uh, or better um, and really take it in. This is from what he's picked up from the show. And he said, recently he was on a trip in, in eastern Washington in Idaho when he found himself on a single lane back road, which uh, is very easy to do, he says, in that area. Area. He traveled for several miles and suddenly the road turned into gravel and he thought, oh crap. And he said, this isn't um, your regular gravel packed road. This is fresh laid gravel poured and graded out flat, several inches of loose, thick gravel. Now he says, um, to clarify, he says he doesn't have um, the average big adventure bike. What he has is a Harley Davidson Ultra Classic, a big road eating is what he describes as touring bike. He says so it was a, a real tense moment for him. So he um, thought back to the podcast and what he's learned, and he thought, well, this is what ran through his head. Okay, number one, relax. Number two, the front end's going to move, but it wants to go straight, so just let it move. Three, the back end will slip. Let it slip. Four, relax. <laughs> Five, don't death grip the handlebars. Take it easy. Six, keep up the speed so the front tire doesn't dig in. And if it does dig in, accelerate just a bit. Seven, make slow movements and predict well in advance any turn. And he lists eight as relax. And he says, yes, I added in relax quite a few times. It's a key point. He said it was bad enough thinking about dropping the bike, but the worst thing about it was trying to pick up this thousand pound bike on a loose gravel road. All this he got from listening to the show. So I thought that's really good. I and mean, it just lets you know that people are taking what you're teaching them and putting it into practice. There, He got out there, no problem at all. He said he used that method and he rode through and it's all what he learned here through this show. That is outstanding. It, you know, it's so funny. He, he says he's on this big Harley and he takes him on the back roads like that. When we do training out on the East Coast, we do a lot of road training and we're always on these big Harleys because that's what you can rent over there inexpensively. And part of the curricula that we had to develop and, and implement was gravel. So we're, uh, we're always wired in with headsets, 
And the last time we taught one of these, we I'm on a big Road King or uh, not a Road King, an Ultra Classic, a huge, huge touring bike. And I'm walking down the line and the instructor in the back is listening to me. And he's one of our adventure instructors with PSSOR as well. And he can hear me because I'm telling the guys, okay, so here's this this nice single track uh, back road here. And you're going to find a few patches of gravel along the way. Well, what the students don't know, it's a 15-mile gravel road. So, And we're talking like you know, logging truck and you know this just one lane paved all the way back and through. And so as we go through, of course, we teach them how to do it. It's amazing how well these big street bikes handle the off-road, but he couldn't stop laughing in his helmet. So now what we're going to talk about today is getting our motorcycle unstuck. And we've done a lot of talk about riding our bike and keeping it upright and and getting through stuff. Well, now we're going to, I guess, deal with that um, inevitable, in some cases, situation where your bike is actually stuck. Well, and it always happens, even to the best riders, because a bike is stalled in front of you or you end up having to stop for some other reason or you just sort of give up and stop instead of keep moving through something. And so uh, it's extremely important to know how to get your bike unstuck when you are stuck. So what are we looking at? Like, let's, I guess what we're going to talk about really here is getting stuck, I think, as you said, stuck in a rut where you're, you've went into mud or sand or something like that and you've got stuck and, and, and that's your situation. That's what we're going to deal with, right? Uh, you know, I think sand and, and rock and, and all this comes into play. And in fact, the reason that this came to, to mind for me as a topic was just last weekend we were doing a, uh, a PSSOR expedition and it wasn't the bikes that got stuck. It was our support truck. And we had to dig out our four by four support vehicle who had uh, backed off the the back edge of the road and we had to build up underneath it. And, you know, we called all the students back and all the riders back and said, hey, there's something to be learned from this. And what occurred to me was the same techniques that we were employing to get this this truck out of this ditch was exactly the same things we had to do for the big bikes. And it was a great turnaround and learning lesson that we did. Why doesn't your truck have a winch anyway? Well, it doesn't get stuck. <laughs> <laughs> it just dawned on me because I'm thinking you're riding around with a winch on your motorcycle. Why doesn't your support truck have a winch? Well, most of most of the, well, the, the adventure bikes that we ride as guides all have winches on them. But the truck mm. doesn't have a winch because it generally just trails in behind. So if we get into sure. any more complicated areas, it usually goes around or it just comes in and pulls us out. Most of our stuff is secondary forest roads, gravel roads, uh, things like that. So it's never been an issue. This was a miscalculation on the driver's part. Mm, that will happen. Well, let's start off by talking about what tools we're going to need for this. So before we talk about getting the vehicle unstuck, what do we have to have with us? You know, so for me, I've over the years come up with a few things that I always seem to keep with me. And one of my favorite tools is just a collapsible shovel. So I have an old military-issued um, they called it an e-tool, and I keep it strapped to my bag or or on the bike. And I not only is it good for getting myself out of being stuck, but it's also good for extinguishing campfires. Or if I put my tent out to actually trench around it, so when it rains, it doesn't you know run right through the tent. So it's a great tool. I carry flat strap for tying down the bike, for lifting it up onto train cars or onto trucks, or just for strapping it down, but also for pulling and for uh, towing. 
The other things I carry are like a hatchet or an axe, a large knife or something for cutting, which again works as a camping tool, but also an extrication tool. And then the tie down loops. These are those uh, flat one inch flat straps that are look like a figure eight. They're just sewn across in the middle. And I always keep at least two of those with me. And those are the the main things I keep. Now, as I mentioned, I, you know, as a guide with PSSOR, we have to worry about, you know, greater things. And, and although we don't use them on our riders often or ever, ever, we have used them on others. And that's the electric winch. So we actually carry an XT17 Warren winch on all of the instructor bikes and the guides bikes. And before that, we carried what was called a Z-drag system, which we took over from You'll see uh, some of the climbing knots, and it's very common for kayakers when they sink their boats to get them back out of the water because they're always full of water and underneath, and it's pretty hard to get a boat out at that point. You mentioned the winch here, and I thought I'd just take a minute to ask you about this. Do you think that's something that the, you recommend everyone have that has a large adventure bike? I think like every tool, you have to really look at it and go, is this really what I need or is it something that's just extra? We've talked about this before, setting up the bikes with these armor where you make this bike in like a tank. You can't hurt it, but it weighs so much you can't ride it either. And the winch is the same thing. It's a eight pounds, which sounds like a lot until you start breaking things down a little bit. And I was lucky enough to be part of the development team with Warren putting this whole thing together. And I, that was one of my things that had to be under 10 pounds. It pulls my bike out and I ride solo a lot. And if I get stuck over the edge someplace or in the mud or if I'm hurt, having that tool to get me out is just like carrying insurance. So it's very well worth it for me. In fact, Christina and I, when we went through South America, we brought that with us all the way down, just knowing that if something happened, could we get ourselves out? I I won't be bringing it to Africa, but we're going to be riding much, much smaller bikes. When I first saw, or when I saw the first motorcycle winch, I guess it was this XD17, I sort of chuckled at it. I thought, well, that seems like a, you know, a, a grasp at a market. But only after I thought more about it and then I saw some of the examples of it being used, I realized that, well, if you have a large bike and you're riding by yourself, it could be a real, I don't know if a lifesaver, but it could certainly save you a lot of grief. I mean, you can get to some incredible back roads anywhere, find yourself off the side of the road and be in a position where you're walking out otherwise. It was very interesting. I was, I went down to Warren. They're based in Oregon state. I'm based in Washington state. So I'm just North of them. And I went down and actually did training for the Warren staff because they didn't know how to use this, even though they were building it. And the thing was, is they're thinking like Jeeps and trucks where they winch forward and winch back. And the, the Warren XD17 is a free-floating winch, so it hangs off a tree or you can strap it from one bike to another, but also you can strap from different directions, forward and backwards. And that made sense. But they, you know, they think, okay, I can pull myself in or pull myself out of something. What they didn't think about were the things like when the bike is toppled upside down facing the wrong direction downhill. And to be able to hook that winch to the frame on the opposite side and right the bike, just to stand the bike up. Because again, you know, 600, 500,000 pounds, depending how you load it and what you're riding. If that bike is, is seat facing downhill and the wheels are facing uphill, standing that bike back up, it's pretty much near impossible. 
Okay, so let's talk about being stuck now. we got an idea sort of of what the equipment is that we should be carrying. And of course, you're going to get into how to use it and what we're actually using these things for as we get into this. So looking at deep mud and sand, what do we do? Well, I'll tell you, deep mud and sand are probably the most common. And I'll start with mud. It's it's one of my favorite things to play in. I'll start with, uh, I'll just give you a, a story of how I learned how to do some of the things. I, I was in Mexico, down in Baja, and we went through an area that was not supposed to be raining and it was supposed to be dry and it ended up with this monsoon rains. In fact, all the bridges were washed out on the peninsula and everything else. And we went, we were on the road. We weren't out on trails. And as we went through, the bike stopped suddenly and began sinking straight down. I mean, I'm sitting on the bike and it's like watching a dinosaur sink in the tar pits. I was like, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> and it wasn't until it hit the the skid pan that, or the skid plate that it actually stopped sinking because it gave enough surface area and it was mucky and buried. And this is a perfect example of when you go, I really need to figure out how to get out of this. Yeah. And your initial reaction, of course, with anything like that is to push and pull it and get somebody on the front and just try and drag it straight through. What method are we going to use? Well, what we did was first you stop and you figure out what's going wrong. And then you try to get your bike as light as possible. And one of the keys in extricating any kind of stuck vehicle, whether it's motorcycle, truck, whatever, is preparation. Do everything up front so you have 100% chance of success. Don't go halfway. Almost always you'll end up digging a deeper hole or damaging something if you don't just take the time to set things up. So first thing I did was just strip the bike. I took everything I could off the bike to make it light. I'm so glad you said that first off, because that's something that I also have learned through four wheeling is that you do not do a a half ass attempt as your first one. You got to do it right. Stop. Like you said, stop, look it over, consider what you've got there to work with, consider your situation and your options, and then do it right the first time, because otherwise it just tends to get worse and worse. And pretty soon, you know, I, I know with four wheel drives, pretty soon you're sliding off the track and you're stuck far worse than what you were when you even started out or you break something or lose something. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I did not want to happen because I was traveling. I'm not just out playing. So once I got the bike emptied out, I dug out my trusty shovel. And this is where I realized at the time I had a, an inexpensive commercial shovel. And that was the last time. Now I have a military grade one because it was a horrible, (laughs) horrible tool. Again, sometimes cheaping out is not the right thing. So I I dug a trench along the front of the wheels as far as I could, making a nice light ramp out of the mud. And then the other thing I need to do is get the bike up and high. And here's what we get to do on uh, on the bikes that you can't always do in an automobile. And that is I need to get my tires up and out of the muck. So what I did is I, I dug a trench beside the bike and pulled all the mud away from the right side. Then I pushed the bike over on its side on the left. Then your wheels are actually up in the air and you can dig out underneath it to make it smooth. And then you can fill it up with whatever you find. You can put rocks in there. You can put branches in there, anything to give it more surface area and to get it up higher. So you're not trying to get out of a ditch anymore. Just to go back to what you said just a minute ago, you're saying you dug up from one side. Are you saying you, you flopped the bike on its side to begin with? Well, yeah, because when I stopped, I stepped off the bike and it didn't go anywhere. It was standing vertical. My wheels were submerged all the way to the axles. I was floating on the skid plate. I mean, this thing is deep. And so, it's so you push the bike over at that point? 
Exactly. So I, but you can't actually push it over because there's so much mud on both sides of the tires. It wouldn't go anywhere. So I actually had to dig out on one side of the bike. So I could push it over. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because you know, the, the common method is to push the bike over and put stuff underneath the wheels. And I often wondered about precautions of uh, pushing it over when it's stuck, just like you're saying, because you got a lot of leverage there. And I think there's potential there to do some damage, possibly bend a rim. Yeah. And that's, and again, it's that preparation. The other thing to think about is not only am I digging out one side to throw it over, but once it throws over on the other side, when those handlebars go clumping down into the mud, now all of a sudden you're stuck on its side. So I did lay down, I found some old tarp in the area and I actually laid down this plastic tarp where the handlebars and those things that would dig into the mud so that I had some kind of um, float per se to keep it up on top of the mud some. So that when I stood it back up, I didn't have this all over the handlebars and of course, or didn't get it stuck on its side. Mm, that's a very good point. And also all the mud into your switches and your, and your, your grip and everything. That, that's a very good point. Okay. So what do we do next? So once I was out, uh, like I said, I, I got underneath and I filled it in as much as I could underneath. And I used that, that same, a part of that same plastic tarp and I laid it down underneath the wheels. Then I was able to get, I had one other person with me and we stood the bike up. And once it was up, again, making sure that overkill is is not overkill. We wanted to make sure we did it right. We actually took his bike, which he had a KLR650. He had made it across. He'd gone a different route and put his bike on his side and used it as an anchor point. And then we set up a, a Z-drag pulley system so that we could increase our leverage you know, for him to help pull the bike out. Okay. So what is a Z-drag pulley system? So a Z-drag is a, a three to one. It's basically um, a couple of pulleys and you use some what they call Prusik knots or, or Prusik loops that you can slide these pulleys up and down one of the ropes. And of course, every time you run the ropes through a pulley, it decreases the amount or increases the amount of pulling power you have. So we were able to attach to his bike to my bike and then run a pulley back from my bike up to a pulley on the line and then back down to him. And then what he does is it, it for every pound he pulls, he ended up with three pounds of strength. So he had three times the pulling power of, of just normally pulling on the bike. And what you lose there is the speed. You're down to one third the speed of movement. Exactly. But again, he's walking with it. He's pulling it. And at this point, once the bike's up and we're on this more solid surface, now I can get beside the bike because at this point I can't get on it. And I can start working the clutch in the friction zone to get this bike moving forward and give it a little nudge at the handlebars to help it motion. And he can pull with the pulley to keep the bike going. And of course, once we get moving, we keep it going. The Z-drag system, you could sort of say it's very similar to what a lot of people would realize or recognize as block and tackle setup. It's exactly the same thing. Block and tackle is generally what people think of for four by fours. If you look at um, the climbing and, you know, like the uh, kayaking, you know, I did kayaking sometime in my past. Uh, They call it a Z-drag. Okay. So to to pull this out with the Z-drag system, why why would you go to a winch system? Like what does the winch have over the Z-drag system? Well, the thing, uh, the Z-drag is great because it's light and I can repurpose the rope. And again, adventure riding is so much about repurposing. So if I'm in bear country, I can throw the rope over a tree, pull my food up into the tree, things like this. Hang a tarp, yeah, do anything. Ex- yeah. Exactly. For working on bikes, you can use it for towing. You can use it. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, uh, dry your clothes. It's a great multi-purpose thing to have rope and pulleys and things on you. But it's very difficult to operate. If you're the only one there, 
and it still requires a lot of uh, muscle or weight to get things moving. And if you know, one of the major components that I teach at the school is work smart and use less energy. And that's really key. And if I can push a button on an XT17 and get 1,700 pounds of pulling over a Z-drag where I need multiple people, then that's an advantage. Well, this brings me up to my next question. I've seen many times where people have got a vehicle stuck, the motorcycle stuck, and, and they try and push it out. They don't even fire it up. Are there times when you should fire it up? Are there times when you should just push it out? What's your opinion? I, I always have a bike running. I load bikes into trucks with the motor. I pull them up you know, hills. I pull them out of mud. I always have the motor running. And even with a winch system pulling it, I still do an assist, a power assist using the motor of the motorcycle itself. And this is where, as we went back talking in the past, how much I've stressed that fine motor control of the throttle and the clutch and being able to detect just prior to slip on the back tire. So you can work that throttle and work to the clutch and actually rock that bike or use power to keep it moving once things get in motion. It makes total sense. I mean, why push the thing when you've got something there that's going to drive itself? It's the same as if you had a winch there to pull it. Why would you push it if you've got something to assist you? And you can still help by having someone, if you have a couple of people there, they can also help pull and push the bike to assist getting it out. Yeah. And pushing is one of those things we actually seldom do. There are some situations where we push, but most of the times that we find people stuck where people go to help push, they get behind the bike. They're usually on a hill or something like that, slick rock. And the unfortunate part, when they push from behind the bike, they're actually extending the suspension on the back. They're raising the traction from the back wheel. Because they're lifting up with it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so they actually end up with less traction. They're not helping. But also you're getting the mud spread on you, the the risk of tripping and falling into the running motorcycle. So I'm a, a much larger fan of pulling the bike. Okay, so how do you pull it then? There's only so much you can pull on, and you certainly can't have everyone pulling on the handlebars. Exactly. So I mentioned those little tie-down straps, the little figure-eight-style tie-down strap. I use those as handles. So you can put them around the frame or the fork, and as you slide the loop behind and the other loop through that loop, it becomes a handle. And so they can grab a hold of that handle and pull on the front of the bike. It, You'll notice in the dirt bike world, they'll actually put a handle over the back fender and across the front forks just for this so you can help pull things out. The second part of this is you can get that one-inch strap I mentioned early on as part of my extrication kit, and I can run it through those straps so they can get up onto more solid surface and they can have better footing as they pull on the bike. And then the straps, you put them as low on the bike as possible. So the lower part of the fork legs or the lower part of the frame. So as they pull, they're lifting the front end up and out of whatever we're stuck into. If you pull from the handlebars, just by pulling forward, you're compressing the front wheel and the suspension into whatever you're stuck into. And are you at any time putting the straps on the forks? I do. I don't have a problem putting the straps on the forks, but I try to put them as low as we can. Now, of course, you have to be careful if the bike's going to go zipping past. But generally, if you're stuck, you're moving very, very slowly. So, no, you can put them on the forks, but the lower you go, the better off you are most of the time. And what about um, grabbing the wheel? And, you know, sometimes you'll see people grab the wheel and they'll try and turn the wheel, you know, pull on the wheel sort of thing to help extricate the bike. That's actually not a bad technique where you can 
again, this idea of don't hurt yourself and don't use too much energy. But if you get directly over the top of the wheel, you can actually do a squat and often lift the front of the wheel up and out of whatever you're stuck into. But again, it's that same reason why we threw the bike over. The goal here is to get it up and over whatever it is that's stopping us. So if you can raise it up and put filler underneath it, or uh, a lot of times if you're stuck up into rocks or on a log, you can put a kicker, which is a, a smaller log or smaller rocks in front of it. So you build a ramp so you can actually get up and out. And back to what you said right at the very start was to stop and assess your situation, look at what you've got, because um, you want to make sure that everybody's working on the same idea. Everybody understands you're doing the same thing rather than just everyone grabbing a hold and pulling and yanking. And, and do it like you mentioned before, do it once and do it right. And this is one of the few times where overkill isn't usually overkill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you talk out your idea, you say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to handle it. You go here, you go here sort of thing and, and work your way through it. And that way no one gets run over and, and no one has a different idea of what's going on. They're not grabbing things that shouldn't be going. People aren't grabbing wheels when somebody else is trying to drive it. Yeah. Safety is a big deal. And the other thing that time gives you, and we had mentioned some extrication tools that I keep in my kit with me all the time, but are the improvised tools that we find when we're out there. And that's anything for logs or boards to, to help raise the bike or, you know, a large rod or even a fence post like a four by four where you can put one one rock or log down and use the fence post to help leverage part of the bike up and out of something. Tarps, plastic, branches, bushes, friends and bystanders, other vehicles. You know, these are all different things that may be in the area. And if you just stop, take a look at the situation and then look around at your resources, you can start building a plan. I'm always surprised that when I have a breakdown or a flat tire or something like that, all you do is you search the size of the roads and it's incredible. You'll find something to place your bike on. You'll find something to work on the roads, right? We were driving on them all the time. There's stuff dropped on them all the time. There's a good chance you're going to find what you need, like you're saying, and, and at least you can find stuff and say, okay, can I use this? Well, and way back, there was a show called MacGyver. Probably most of the people listening to this show remember that, but the whole concept of that was, not seeing things for what they are, but what they can do for us. And that's really what you're talking about is just, okay, I've got a problem. What do I need to happen? And what do I have around me to make that happen? So acceptable things to stick under the tires are what? As far as under the tire, the things usually that come to play are other rocks or gravel. Um, Branches are usually very good. Uh, you can use tarps and even if you're in, in a really bad situation, any kind of clothing or cloth, if you're really trying to get out of it, sometimes you can put something like that down underneath it to help get it up and, and leveraged. So really anything that provides support. Now, I wanted to ask you this because it's an idea I've always had in my head and I, and I have never had a chance to try it, is to add traction to the rear wheel in, in a difficult situation, you know, something you, you got into a, maybe a, a very long muddy stretch, which you didn't expect to happen. I've thought of lacing the rear wheel with a heavy rope if you had that. You know, that I've never tried that, but turning it into a paddle, uh, there's, I suppose it could happen. Yeah, you know, or like a chain set. You know, you'd wrap it around. And I always thought if, if I was really stuck, that's what I would do. And I've thought of it with four by fours as well. And I just never had a chance to try it, but it'd be like, it'd almost be like a chain set. Well, this is also a situation where airing down really makes it, it can make a difference, especially in the sand. 
And you know my opinion on airing down. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people make more of it than uh, than they need to because we have these limitations of these big bikes. By the time we air them down so much, we bend rims and spin tubes. And so we have to have this fine balance. But when you're in sand and sometimes in mud, airing them down very low, we're talking to the, the mid-teens, can be very beneficial to give you additional traction. But you do have to be careful because when you get down to those mid-teen numbers that are dirt bike numbers, we don't have wheel locks. And it's pretty easy when you get heavy grip to spin the tire off the rim. So this is only for very slow action just to crawl out of the sand and then air them right back up. Mm-hmm. And even a slight rotation on a tube tire can rip the stem off and you've got a flat tire and you're in a bad situation. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times uh, to help with that a little bit, you can take the nut the that's down next to the rim on the, the filler stem and back that up against the cap. And if you do get a little shift in there to allow the inner tube to slide slightly inside and allow that to rotate without actually ripping it off the tube itself. I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people have taken the nuts completely off for that reason. They're saying that, uh, that if, you know, if it tends to spin, then hopefully it'll pull it back in and and just spin and not destroy the tube. Well, it'll rotate. It won't, it won't go that far. Mm. So yeah, usually an old, an old dirt bike trick is just to back that nut off to the top cap, you know, the, that protects the the valve stem itself. And that's only when you're airing down. Yeah. And and you can leave it like that at all times. It's not going to hurt anything to do that. Uh, I, I like to leave the nut in place just because that way when I'm messing with the tire, it's not sliding in and out so I don't throw it off. But yeah, when you air down, you really need to be a lot more careful about that. And you could put wheel locks in some of the 21-inch rims, but you still have the issue of the back tire. And even even things like a KLR, a 130, it's you know, that's really pushing it to find a wheel lock. And the thing with it is, I've always thought, see, I'd leave them tight, is that the, the chance of it sliding, like on my rims, the, it's quite tight where you stick the stem in. So when you shove it through, the, the chance of it pulling straight down and popping through is, is just about zero, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to happen. Even on a dirt bike, it won't do that. Mm. I said, you can get a, a, a fair angle of lean, but they're not pulling all the way back in. Right. I've never seen it happen. So listener exercise. Okay. So a couple of things is going, okay, if we're going to do this, how do we do it without just putting ourselves into the mud? And that's, of course, what I do. That's my job is to teach people how to gain skills without actually getting them in harm's way. And I had to think about this one. And the number one thing is perfect that clutch control. Get to the point where you can detect that how much power you can put to the ground without it actually slipping. One of the most common errors I see is people get on the hills and we're doing these, you know, starting from a stop on a hill. And as soon as they feel the slightest forward motion, they want to throw the clutch the rest of the way out. And they either stall the bike or they spin up the back tire. But they're not comfortable just as soon as it starts to creep, just pausing right at that exact spot and allowing it to creep just a little bit more. And of course, when you get in mud or you get in sand, that becomes even more important because it, it takes so little to actually break that traction. So one of the ways to do that is have the riders go out to a hill, generally something like a grass, you know, something that's fairly slick, or if they have someplace out uh, with some mud or something that's not going to really get them too stuck, and have them stop on that hill, just stand next to the bike and use the clutch and throttle and get that bike to start to walk up the hill about a foot or two feet, and then have them stop. And then do the same thing again until they get to the point where the bike 
can't go anymore. No matter how hard they work it, they just can't seem to get that bike to crawl anymore. This is where the second part of the drill comes into play. Now's a chance to start experimenting. Start figuring out what types of surfaces and what kinds of fillers will give you additional traction. So they can start doing things like sliding rocks, you know, small rocks, gravel up underneath the tire and see if that'll help give it traction. Do that with a branch. Do that with some old clothes. Find an old piece of tarp or a kitchen towel or a bathroom towel and slide that up underneath and start figuring out how these different elements change the traction characteristics. The other thing they can do is what they'll do is trench in front of the tire so that where the tire is normally pointed uphill, if they dig a trench slightly in front of it, all of a sudden it becomes level. And then they, on the other side of that, then they can taper that back into the hill so that when they start to roll forward, the wheel's not actually going up anymore. It actually is moving forward and then bumping up the hill. So you get a bit and of momentum do, before you bump up over the hill. Exactly. In fact, uh, on, on dirt biking, what we would do is when you're sitting on a hill like that, a lot of times you'll start to dig a rut. And you'll roll backwards and go right up on top of that rut. And you'll park with your front tire up on the top. So you're actually rolling downhill into the rut. And then that's enough momentum to pop up out of the other side and keep going. Now, when you're saying try these different things to see what sort of traction you get from them, you're talking about putting the bike on its side? No, I'm just talking about learning to discover how your ability to detect traction and gain traction change. So the first thing is figure out basically the... The common, you know, you have whatever your surface is and you're trying to get it to go and, and you're using your clutch and you're using your throttle and you're like, okay, I've met my limit. I can't get this bike to go any further. And then try that again, but putting down a different surface on that same hill, put down some gravel or branches, clothing, tarps, uh, sticks, different things to go. How do they change the traction characteristics? Because when you're on the side of the road and your bike is actually stuck, you're going, how do I get this out of here? And how do I do it in one fell swoop? Once you know how each of these materials reacts to your bike and traction, you can pick the best materials or you can get more creative in finding what you need to get yourself out of that situation. So you're basically educating yourself with the tools and then you have to assemble those tools when you actually need to put it to use. And I can tell the clutch work is so important because you're always telling us this. I mean, it wasn't that many episodes you were telling us to take our bike for a walk. Um, We're walking along and learning to work the clutch so that we can use the clutch between the fully in and fully out position. And and that is really, I just can't emphasize that enough. I, I see it so often and that's where people struggle is just being able to change pressure at the clutch lever. And I was telling them, we're not moving it by centimeters. We're moving it by millimeters or even less, where you just pressure changes on the clutch. A great place where you'll start to discover when you really have this mastered is when you're in this big, chunky, baby head type rock. Because as you roll up onto this rock and you have too much throttle, as you go off the other side, it'll kick the rock out. And your your wheel will start to free spin in the air. When it hits the ground, of course, it starts digging and chomping and bounces all over the place. But you're really good. You'll feel it as it kicks off the back of the bike and you can decrease the power. So when it hits the ground, the wheel isn't spinning faster than its actual momentum. And it can crawl up and over the next rock. And as it starts to kick out, then you can actually trim power back off. And you actually crawl through this rock with nothing spinning, without the bike jumping all over the place. Much safer, much less likely of injuring yourself or your bike. 
you know, and of course that's, those are the kind of techniques that we, we work so hard to perfect with the people that come do our tours and our training because we don't want people getting hurt when they're out there. And too many people travel solo or with one or two other people. And when you're really in a bad situation, that's not a lot of people to have when somebody's hurt. You know, you got three people. When one person's hurt, you're down to two. And if one person's taking care of them and the other guy goes down the mountain, somebody's riding alone now. So give them all the tools we can. Now, is there anything else to the listener exercise? I, I think that's enough. If people play with that, they're going to find you can get extremely creative with changing the surface or how much you can dig out or getting up on that lip and just really doing a, a start from a stop on a hill because that's the best way to kind of mimic this loose situation or this loose traction. The other thing, of course, is to actually go out in the mud and deliberately stick your bike and, and play with different ways to get out of it, but stick it in a place where you have friends with you or you have a truck nearby when you really get them deep that you can hook up a, a strap and you pull it back out, you know, where you have full size shovels, but do the stuff on purpose so that when you don't need to do it on purpose, you have it. I was going to say, it'd be good to set up a day where you and your buddies could go out and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to practice getting stuck and unstuck. But then it dawned on me, you know what they do better is if they just called you up and got on to one of your, your, um, your trips or your, or your, uh, do a lesson with you and, and figure out how to do it professionally. But having said that, you'd also mentioned about practice tipping your bike over far enough to raise the wheels off the ground. Should that be part of the listener exercise? You know, actually, I I think it really is. We we talked a little bit of, in one of the other episodes on how to pick these bikes up and getting behind the bike, peering directly across and pressing forward into the bike. When people lift them, they have a tendency to want to lift the bike up. And what they don't realize is they're leveraging the bike onto the wheels. And if you get down behind the bike and you press forward into it using your chest, so your arms aren't actually lifting anything. They're just holding you in place so you don't push yourself off the bike. And that's a, a really good thing to know you can do as well. You'll actually find in the mud many times it's actually easier to pick it up than it is when it's laying on the ground because it doesn't lay over quite as far. One of the things that we did a couple of years ago, we do some very specialty training uh, throughout the year. So if you watch our schedule, we'll come up with classes at different rallies or different types of tours that bring in different elements and one of the ones we did a couple of years back was called Mission Impassable. And it was, it was strictly what it sounds like. Our goal by the end of the day was to have done, gone someplace where every single rider went, I never thought I could do that with my bike or get there. And yes, we had shovels out and we had winches out and we were learning the riding skills and the skills to get through stream crossings and everything else. It was a lot of fun. Well, Brett, once again, thank you very much. Glad to be on the show again, and I can't wait to see what we come up for the next one. I've been speaking with Brett Tax from Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. Now, I encourage you to drop by our website and check out the show notes for this episode and also the last few episodes that we put up with the uh, rider skills segments in it because there's a lot of good information in there. And on this one in particular, Brett gave us a list of things that you might want to carry on your motorcycle for getting unstuck and, and a bunch of other stuff. So drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Look at the show notes for this episode. And by the way, if you have any trouble finding it, there's a little search button on the column there on the, I think it's on the right-hand side. You can just type in Brett Tax or Rider Skills, and you should come up with all the episodes. And that's for any of the episodes. If you're looking for something in particular, just put it in the search.
Adventure Rider Radio is supported by, in part, Max BMW Motorcycles, who's been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your electrical system and will inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty, which is new. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. See it for yourself at www.cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, who offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Available at www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. But before you do, if you like what we're doing here and you want to keep the show coming to you for free, drop by our website, click on the donate button and send us a donation. Anything over $10 is going to get you a gift sent back at you in the mail. Our way of saying thank you very much. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, the listener, of course, for listening. Thank you for that. We also want to thank our show supporters. And anytime you're dealing with them, if you're speaking to them about anything, and be sure to let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. See you next week. Hi, this is Teach McNeil, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio.